The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are in week three of a three-week series, so our final series here, uh, sorry, final week um, of looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Uh, the reason why we've been looking at these 11 verses, like we said at the start of the, of the, start of the series, is simply because they're awesome. They're really, really great. It's really good, uh, really good, wonderful truths to remind us of the love of God for us, the hope that we have in Him, and the assurance of salvation that we have in Him. And this morning, we're going to be simply looking at uh, verses 6 to 11. So Jared read out the, the whole uh, passage there. We've read out the whole passage each week. Today, we're looking at simply verses 6 to 11. And in this section, Paul is really going to double down on God's love for us. And he's going to show to us how his love for us, how God's love for us, provides for us the greatest security we could ever know. So let's pray, and then we'll get into God's word. Father, we we thank you, Lord, that we have your word, that we can read it and understand it and come to know it. And we can come to know you through your word, Father. And Lord, as we read this morning about your great love for us, Father, for those of us who doubt your love, as we hear about this, would we be encouraged to hear more of it, Lord? Encouraged to believe it a little bit more, Lord? Encouraged to receive it a bit more? Holy Spirit, overwhelm us this morning with the great love that the Father has for us. Minister to us this morning, Holy Spirit. Teach us what we need to be taught. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And may we know and and receive and believe and truly get how great your love is for us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Finding the right way to show somebody else how much you love them can be a fairly tricky thing. Uh, If you're familiar at all with the five love languages, uh, that gives you a bit of an idea of that. Like, I I appreciate the five love languages. I don't put a lot of stock into that stuff, but I I find it to be helpful. Uh, But the five five love languages essentially depict or tell us that uh, different people show and receive love in different ways. So, for instance, my preferred means of showing love to another person is gift-giving. I like to give gifts to people. That's how I show love. Uh, for Kirsty, her gift-receiving is probably the bottom of her list of how she likes to receive love. And so finding gifts for her or showing her how much I love her is something that I've got to really think about and gets a bit tricky for me. Uh, I've learned over the years through birthdays and Christmases that uh, probably the best present is no present at all. She genuinely appreciates that. And sometimes I, I've sold that to people and they will say to me, oh yeah, but she says that what she really wants is a present. And I say, no, you don't know Kirsty. She really doesn't want a present. And so this week we celebrated 15 years of marriage and I got her nothing. <laughs> and she loved it. 
it was so great. She like, she, I got, and I pretended, oh, I'll go get your present. And she was like, yeah, very funny. And then I had nothing to show. And she said, thank you so much. I love you. Happy anniversary. And that was our anniversary gift to one another, me not getting her anything and her appreciating that. That was how we showed our love towards one another. When we are seeking, and I do love you a lot, she also loves public displays of affection. That's really her jam. She loves it so much. When we are seeking to demonstrate love for somebody else, whether that's our spouse or children or a parent or a brother or sister or a friend, it can be quite hard to articulate the joys and the delight and the feelings of safety that that person gives to us, the way that person makes us feel. And one of the absolute central truths of the gospel is that God loves us. God loves us. And what we're going to see here in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, is really a summary, a comprehensive summary of how God demonstrates his love towards us. The passage that we looked at last week ended with the line, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And that's actually the first time that the word love has been mentioned in Romans so far. Paul, had, in the first four chapters of Romans, he hasn't mentioned love, but he gets to chapter 5. That's where Paul starts to talk about love in verse 5. And then from verse 6, it begins with the word for. And that tells us that Paul is going to further elaborate on God's love for us. We could understand and interpret Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, as, as a means of God really saying to us, this is how much I love you. God really articulating and demonstrating and showing and proving his love to us. I've got three points for today. First point is this. God's love has been proven to us. That's in verses 6 to 8. Point number two, God's love secures us. That's verses 9 to 10. And then point number three, God's love causes us to rejoice. That's what we read in verse 11. So the first point, God's love proven to us. One of the mistakes that we can often make is that we assume that when God wants to show his love to us, that he do that the same way that we would show love to somebody else. That is, we might assume that God would say to us, if he's going to show us his love, this is how you make me feel. These are all the things that I love about you. But this passage doesn't do that at all. In fact, in this exposition of how much God loves us, Paul uses four different adjectives to describe humanity, and none of them are flattering. He says, we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were God's enemies. Don't you just feel so loved by that? Like, isn't that just heartwarming? Oh, thanks, God. So lovely. I can't imagine Hallmark ever being interested in hiring God as a card writer for them, but this is how God speaks. This is incredibly important because it's locating the reason for God's love for us, not in us, but in him. He says that we were weak. We lacked moral strength. We had no capacity to, to do anything about that. He says we were ungodly. We just don't care about the we just didn't care about the things of God. He says in verse 8, we were sinners. 
That is, we were disobedient and negligent to God's divine commands. And in verse 10, he says, we were enemies. That is, enemies of God, totally opposed to him. Now, just to be sure, those are description, that is a description of us before we become believers. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then that is your standing with God right now. That is where you stand in terms of your relation to God right now. That's how God views you. And if that is you, I'm really glad that you're here and I hope that you will listen up because there's an invitation here for this to no longer be true of you. If you're here and you are a Christian, then these things are no longer true of you. But we need to be reminded of God's great love for us. You see, this passage is critical for understanding the incredible height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God for us. Because like I said earlier, it locates God's love for us not in who we are, not in what we've done, not in what we offer God or can do, but in who God is. God's love for us is because of what he has done for us, who he is, what he is doing in us, and what he promises to do for us. And at the very core of God's love for us is the death of Jesus Christ. He died on our behalf as a substitute for us. We should have been the ones who to receive God's wrath against our sin, but Jesus came to earth to demonstrate God's love for us by dying the death that we deserve. Here's the thing. If we believe that the love of God for us and the fact that he sent Jesus to die for us is because of what we can offer to God or because we showed some kind of potential, if we think that that love comes to us because uh, there's something about us there that is like, like God would find useful to us, to him, we'll never understand his love. We'll never have any joy in him and we'll never have any security in God. Like if, you, if when you hear about the love of God, you think to yourself, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty great, and I feel like I've got a lot to offer God. If that's what you think, like yeah, that kind of makes sense, then God's love for you will mean nothing to you. If we think that we have contributed to our salvation in any way, we'll be miserable, and God's love will never mean anything to us. Why? Because we all know the truth of what's going on deep down inside of our hearts. We know that there's a depravity and of sin deep down that we don't want anybody else to find out about it. And we can disguise it and we can mask it with layer upon layer of good works and external experiences, but the reality is is that we can't escape our fallenness on our own. Those things will never deal with completely with the deep down, deep down fallenness of our sin. If God's love is something that we can become worthy of, then God's love is something that we can become unworthy of. And this is why God's love for us and the fact that it's in him makes it so incredible, so wonderful. It says it was while we were helpless, while we were still sinners, and while we were enemies that Christ died for the ungodly. It wasn't that we were at our best. It wasn't that we were showing some kinds of improvement. It was while we were enemies, while we were sinners. And it was at the exact right time, says Paul. He didn't wait until we had improved ourselves. It was at the right time. 
In other words, it wasn't that God looked at us and saw some potential. It wasn't that he saw some good in us that made us worthy of redemption. He saw us in our weakness. He saw us in our ungodliness. He saw our sin. He recognized us as enemies. And those were the ones that he came to die for. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son. Why? To make a wretch his treasure. Our world, ourselves sometimes, we want to minimize sin. Our world wants to to deny sin out of existence. But the denial of sin simply denies the love of God for us. The gospel presents us with this stunning reality that doesn't deny our fallen state, but radically eclipses it. The gospel is not, don't worry, your sins aren't that bad, therefore God accepts you. The gospel is, your sins are hideous, and they have made you into a wretch. Yet Jesus Christ came to die for hideous wretches. Christianity is not God going around congratulating good people for being good. Christianity is Jesus Christ dying for bad people who had no hope of ever being good on their own. And that is crucial for understanding the depth of God's love for us and our assurance, the great assurance that we have in salvation. If we are unwilling to accept the basic reality that before we were in Jesus, we were an absolute mess, then we'll never know how deep the love of God is for us. We'll never have any kind of security in God. Assurance in Christ, assurance of our salvation will be a myth to us because we believe that we could earn it. And if you can earn it, then you can unearn it. So just to help us get how serious this is, Paul gives us a very simple illustration. He says, For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. It's quite simple to understand. One person dying on behalf of another person. It's a rare thing. It might happen, but only if that person is really worth dying for. I read a story this week about a, a little boy in America whose, whose younger sister was actually uh, she was diagnosed with a, a rare disease and she needed a blood transfusion to be able to survive. The boy's blood, her older brother's blood, was a match. And so after explaining it to him briefly, the boy agreed to help out his sister. They put the needle into his arm and they started taking some of the blood And when the procedure was finished, the boy said to the doctor, how long until I die? And the doctor was puzzled. And the doctor soon came to realize that this boy was under the impression that by helping his sister out, he would lose his own life. We love stories like that, don't we? Like, Isn't that just a wonderful thing? This boy thought, okay, yeah, well, high cost, but yeah, sure. I'll die for my little sister. She's worth it. It's a wonderful story. It's nice, it's great. God's love for us is even better. He says, perhaps someone would die for a good person. Conditions would have to be perfect though, just like that. They'd have to be really worth saving. And Paul uses this illustration to catapult God's love so much further. We read in verse 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we offered him something great. Not while we were being good. It wasn't on our best day. Christ died for sinners. The gospel pushes us further because it's 
not Jesus dying for people who deserve it, it's that he died for people who didn't. This is the proof of God's love for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins and showed no signs of ever improving, that was when Jesus Christ died for us at the exact right time while we were still sinners. That there is proof of God's great love. I'm harping on on this because it's so hard for us. So, well, it's, it's so easy for us sometimes to doubt the love of God. Like maybe you start every now and then, or maybe quite often, you feel like maybe God's getting tired of you. Like maybe God was enthusiastic about saving us initially, but time has passed, and there's a bunch of things that we thought we'd be better at by now, and we're not, and maybe God's just kind of getting a little bit tired of us. Like maybe he's regretting saving us, and maybe he's, he wished he'd save someone who was just a little bit better. It's kind of like when you go to the shops and you buy something and you get really excited about it and at the checkout you're thrilled and then you get home and you open it and get out of the box and it's disappointing. There's something about it that, that just wasn't right. And that's how we think that maybe God thinks about us. God looks at us and he's like, man, I was really hoping for a bit of a, a, bit of a better outcome for, for this salvation. So we think that way. And maybe we think about God's love when we hear God's love. We go, that's true for everybody else here at church, but not for me. Like if everybody else here at church found out who I really was and who I am behind closed doors, then they could never, no one would expect that God could ever love me. If that's you, pay attention to the fact that Paul says that God proves this, his love to us. That word, prove there, is wonderful. It's, and it's really strange, actually. Firstly, in, in the Greek text, it's sitting in a very emphatic position. We've got to pay attention to it. The word prove is a good translation. If your Bible says uh, demonstrate, God demonstrated his love to us, or God shows his love to us, those are good demonstrations. That is the meaning of the word. But this word has quite a bit of nuance to it. The word is sunastami. And it's made up of two words. One of those words, histami, uh, is to stand. The other word is sun. It's a preposition, preposition sun, which means to stand together with someone or something. And when you understand that, that's a bit of a strange word to translate into the word prove. If you're standing by something, if you're standing with something or someone, it means that you're recommending it, you're commending it. In fact, I think it's the King James Version that says, God commends his love to us in this way. Paul uses the exact same word in chapter 16, verse 1, where he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. In other words, I'm standing by Phoebe. I'm standing with her. Receive her as you would receive me. I love Phoebe. Believe me when I say Phoebe is great. I'm standing, I'm endorsing her, I'm standing by her. Have you ever had someone endorse something to you or stand by something and it turned out to be a total flop? When we first moved to the coast here, uh, there was a lady that I knew in Brisbane and she said, oh, listen, you've got to try this particular coffee shop on the Sunshine Coast. It's in Caloundra. I, I won't tell you the name of it. Um, she told me the name of it. And so um, I was like, okay, that's great. Like, I, I, I'm... I'm a bit of a coffee snob, I'll admit that, uh, and I was pretty excited to um, try a new place that I'd never seen before, and so I went there with quite a bit of expectation, went to this coffee shop, ordered a small flat white, and it was terrible. Like, it was, it was absolutely terrible, and I, I'm a coffee snob, but this was like, even if, you do, if you're like, you know, reasonably into coffee, this wouldn't have impressed you at all. 
And I really hope next time I saw this woman that she wouldn't bring this up again because I didn't know what to say. Like, how do I? She stood by this coffee, but now I'm like, oh. I just. So the next time I saw her, I was having a chat to her, and very soon into the conversation, she said, hey, did you try that coffee? And I was like, ha yeah, that was, um, listen, I've got to be honest with you. Um, that just wasn't my cup of tea. I was like, that wasn't, that just was, oh, it just wasn't my jam. And she went, oh, okay. Well, I only ever really drink decaf, so I've never really tried their real coffee anyway. And I was like, why did, why, why did you endorse this? You stood by this. You were like, this is the best coffee shop, and this is the place where everybody gets their coffee from. Why did you stand by this? And she was like, yeah, I wasn't really standing by that after all. When Paul says that God proves his love for us in this way, he's saying this love, God's love, will not disappoint us. God's love is the love that we need. God's love is the love that we crave. God's love is the love that we desire so deeply. God's love looks at exactly who we are and sees who we are. It's not a love that is blind. It is a love that has perfect vision. He knows exactly who you are, exactly what your history is, exactly what you are and aren't capable of. And his love is infinite and eternal and ongoing and unending and unconditional for you anyway. When God proves his love to us, he's standing by it. He's, and he's, he's not, when he says he's standing by it, it's not just that he's tell, trying to express something that is true about what he does, which is absolutely true. It's telling us about something that, about him. He's standing by his love. His love can't be separated from him. He stands by it. We can know and trust in God because of his love for us. This is why it doesn't just say that God proves his love. It actually says God proves his own love. It's possessive. It's his. This is his love. Not just love in general. This is his love. When we think about it, that sentence would have made total sense, perfect sense, without that little word own. But a little possessive pronoun there makes it intensely personal. God's love is not just this thing that emanates from his being without any kind of real direction or purpose. God's love is intensely personal and possessive. It comes from him. It's his. It's something that he possesses and he gives to us. And we should pay attention to those two little words, to us. The Greek really leans into that fact. His love comes to us, literally into who we are. His love is for us, and we should linger on that for a while. If you're the kind of person who quickly doubts God's love for you, who quickly dismisses God's love for you, we should, then you should linger on that for a while. Because it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what your weaknesses are. God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you are and aren't capable of, and that didn't deter him. Christ died for us. And you can count yourself checked off, represented in that tiny two-little word, us. That represents you. Don't count yourself Outside of that, Christ died for us. That's you. Do you doubt the love of God for you?
Maybe when you hear about the love of God, you start stacking up all the evidence of your life against the evidence of God's love for you. You start thinking about all the things that you've done. You start thinking about all, you're in the habit of stacking up the evidence of your life against the evidence of God's love for you. You think, God could never love me. God could never love me because of what I did. God could never love me because of what I can't seem to stop doing. God could never love me because of what was done to me. And we stack up the evidence against God's love. And if that's you, can I encourage you to, to stack up the evidence? To stack it up, just as Paul has done here, naming us weak, ungodly, sinner, and enemy. That's what Paul is doing. He's stacking up the evidence against God's love for us and then pointing to God's triumphant love for us regardless of the fact. God's word says that those things are precisely the evidence that God uses to prove his undying, unending, and unconditional, unyielding love for us. Don't deny those things, but bring God's love. Stack up the evidence of God's love against that. Jesus Christ died for that person. Think about your sin. Think about the stuff that you've done and say, Jesus Christ died for that person. He laid down his, He went to the cross. He crossed the divide. He's the one who laid down his life for that, for me. And the good news of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Jesus and become united with him, none of those things remain true of us anymore. God declares us to be righteous. That is no longer true of you. The opposite is true. No longer are we enemies, but we are called his children. No longer does sin control us, but instead we become increasingly consumed with the glad obedience of faith. That means... We read the Bible, we read God's commands, and where we once resisted it, now we are glad to obey. No longer are we godless, but we become God-centered, and our lives orbit around God. No longer are we weak, but we are able to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That is God's love proven to us. The second point is this. God's love secures us. And these last two points are shorter than that first one, I can promise you that. The next part of this passage builds on God's love to us to express how his love provides for us the greatest security we could ever know. Paul says in verse 9, How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? With those words, how much more then, Paul is using the love of God to bolster a terrific claim about the future, our future salvation on the last day. That is, we can be assured that on the last day, the day of judgment, the day when all of mankind will be gathered to God and he will pass his righteous judgment, those who have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection will be seen to have Jesus' perfect obedience imprinted on them so that when God looks at them, he will reckon them as perfectly righteous and he will welcome them into everlasting exponential ecstasy. We will be saved through Jesus from God's wrath because of God's great love for us. 
This future aspect of salvation has come up a few times in this passage, and it's really important for us to continue to keep our eyes on it because that gives us great security knowing what Jesus has done for us. Paul Paul has made a really similar claim in chapter 5, verse 1. We looked at that two weeks ago. If you remember in chapter 5, verse 1, he uses this word, therefore, since we have been justified, pointing back to a past event, the death of Jesus on a cross, since we have been justified, he draws a line from that to the present effect of salvation. We have peace with God. We have access to to the grace in which we stand. And here, Paul uses the exact same word, since we have been justified. And then he draws another line from that through the present effect of of grace and peace into the future. Since we have been now justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Not just the present effect of salvation, but the future effect of salvation. It's really important that we remember that there are these three time aspects to salvation. There is salvation that has been completed in the past, that is justified, we have been justified. There is salvation that has been uh, continued in the present, we have been, that's that's sanctification. And there is salvation that we, we can look forward to that will be completed in the future, that is glorification. And all three of these things, justification, sanctification, and glorification, are part of the one complete whole. You can't have one without the other two, you can't have two without the third. If one of those aspects of salvation is missing, the other two will be null and void. And this is what Paul wants us to consider as we approach verse 9 and 10. Speaking of the future, he says, we will be saved. Twice, we will be saved. And both of those claims are anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something that has already been established as having been completed in the past. That's the past event that Paul is looking back to, the cross of Jesus Christ. Very simply, the argument of, chapter, of verse 9 is, if you want to guarantee that you'll be spared from the just wrath of God against your sin, look to the fact that you have been declared righteous. You can only, only if you have been declared righteous. This comes by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 10, he makes a really, really similar claim, but he, he just fleshes it out a bit more, and he anchors it this time in the... He, he sets it in the concrete of God's love for us. Paul could have left verse 9 exactly as it was and, and left out verse 10, and this would have made sense. It would just be as true, but he doesn't leave it there. He puts meat on it. Verse 10 is the meat on the bones of verse 9. So read in verse 10 again. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, that is, being enemies we were opposed to God, shaking our fists in defiance of God. This is a bit of a shocker of a message to our world. See, in our world we would like to to assume and, and believe that everyone is generally good. Everyone's generally good. As long as you don't hurt anybody too much, as long as you're a good person and you try to do your best to, to, to be, good, be a good person, then God's generally probably going to be pretty good with you. Like if you're into religion, that's totally fine, but you know, everyone's pretty good. God basically doesn't have a problem with us then. That there is the attitude behind questions like, why does God judge people? Like, why does God send good people to hell? 
The problem with that question is that it's never happened. God's never sent a good person to hell. None of us are good. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how flagrant or mild our sin is. The problem is that we've assumed the right to sin against God. If God is king and we sin against him, we've assumed the right to be king ourselves. We've tried to push God off his throne and say, no, I'm the one who should be there. That's my rifle spot. That's what it means to be enemies with God. And it's to those enemies that God offers reconciliation through the death of his son. He offers reconciliation to his enemies. Jesus was the one who crossed the divide, and out of his great love for enemies, he died for us. He endured the shame and the pain of the cross on our behalf. Paul finishes this thought then. Then how much more? Let me just read that again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Basically, Paul is saying, if it's the case that God would reconcile enemies to himself, then how could, it, how could he not also save those who have been reconciled? This is the meaning of how much more. Like if you can run five kilometers nonstop, you can run one kilometer nonstop. If you can pick up a 20 kilogram bag of flour, you can pick up a two kilogram bag of flour. If an enemy could be reconciled to God, then a reconciled person will be saved by him. That's the security that we have in Jesus Christ. It's worth noting here the interplay between death and life as well. It's through his death that we were reconciled, and it's by his life that the reconciled will be saved. Those are two two sides of the wonderful coin that we call Christianity. Through his death, he atoned for our sin as our substitute, and it's his life that is imputed to us for a perfect record. Do you doubt the assurance of your salvation? But do you wonder whether you're going to get to a certain point or you're going to get to that day of judgment and you're worried about what's going to happen on that day? Lots of Christians struggle with this. And very interestingly, this is something that the New Testament seems to deal with a lot. Both Jesus and the writers of the Bible in the New Testament over and over again seem to bring this up. Not, not, with, the, not with the purpose of trying to cause us to doubt our, our assurance, but just trying to make sure that we, we locate it in the right spot. One example of this is in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and so many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. These people that Jesus talks about here were locating their assurance of their salvation in what they had done for God. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we do many miracles? Their faith was not in Christ. Their faith was in their faith. Where is your faith? Is it in what you have done? Is it in what you think you have the potential to do? 
Is your faith in your solid church attendance? Is your faith in how much you serve at church? Maybe your, fact, your faith is in the fact that you always meant well. Like, as far as you could tell, your intentions were always good, and you know, that's where my faith is. Friends, it, it won't be enough. Those things count for nothing. The only assurance that we can have of escaping the wrath of God against sin is by being united to Christ by faith. Point number three, God's love causes us to rejoice. We end with verse 11, which says, And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. That word boast, boasting, rejoicing, that's come up a lot in our series. In week number one, it was that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Week number two, we boast in our afflictions. And here Paul simply says, we just boast in God now. This is the triumphant goal of our salvation, that we would boast in God and bring glory to God. When we boast in ourselves and glorify ourselves and what we can do, our lives become all jammed up. When we put ourselves at the center of the universe, it's kind of like asking the sun and the planets to orbit around the moon. Everything gets messed up. Things get messy and horribly out of whack. We jar against each other and everything becomes a complete mess. But we have been called to put God first and to glorify him and to worship him. That is what we are made for. That is our purpose. This is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism addresses this as its first question. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what's our purpose? The answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To boast in him forever. To rejoice in him forever. That's our purpose. That's what it means to boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that we glorify him, we live for him, our lives orbit around him. It means that Jesus Christ becomes our Lord and our Savior. That's why he says we boast in God through our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our King. He is the one who is in charge of our lives. His word is final. We live for him. We, we put him first. We say, Jesus, where do you want me? What do you want me to do with my life? And we listen to him. I've been so encouraged lately. I've been talking to many of you and just hearing people say, I just feel like God is actually leading me over here. I feel like God is just saying, it's time to build my kingdom. I feel like I just want to give my life to Jesus and his kingdom. He is the one, Jesus is the one, as our Lord, who sets the tone and the trajectory for our lives. We listen to him, his word is final. And he's our saviour. It is through Jesus Christ that we have received this reconciliation. Jesus is our saviour, and that means nothing else is. We don't look to our efforts or our works for our salvation. We don't look to our intentions for our salvations, because none of it can actually save us. We instead look to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There, Jesus achieved our justification. Jesus is the means of our sanctification, and Jesus is our guarantee of our future glorification. Let's boast in God. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.